0: Well, good morning, Catherine Parker, a.k.a. Kitty Lofthouse. Hello, Annette. Thank you for having me. Oh, God, it's such a pleasure to be with Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. So, Catherine Parker, this is part of my Origin Stories project, mm-hmm. personal fun for me to talk to people I find fascinating, mm-hmm. who've had a very <laughs> positive impact on me, oh, boy. and I think the world should know about. Well,
1: thank you for saying that. I've been really enjoying um, following some of your podcasts and listening to the different people you've been interviewing, and it's been really,
0: really interesting. Well, now we're going to talk about you. I find you fascinating. And you know how we met? We met through uh, the wonderful James McGuire. Yes, we did. James McGuire, who I interviewed, and of course, Amanda Concanon. Of course, when I first met James, as I mentioned, I would wave to Manda in the Jeep. She was not in real estate at that time, of course she now is. So let's talk about the six degrees of James. Oh, let's
1: talk about that wonderful six degrees of James because um, we we were in Winnipeg and I was out here for a visit um, with my daughter and we were starting to look at some places here in London and Jennifer, my daughter, uh, knows Amanda through work, and so she said, you know, Mom, you really need to meet this couple and have them look after you. So we did meet them, and they took us on a day of looking at places around London, and uh, I just fell in love with them. They're just the most amazing couple. are they gorgeous? Yes, they are. Wonderful they are people, just wonderful, wonderful people, and everything that they say they did in the podcast that you were talking about is absolutely true um, when he talked about um, setting people up with new services that they might need. We needed that when we moved here, and he was able to help us with several several services for our new condo hmm. and um, yeah, they're just what what they say they are, they are. Exactly, true mm-hmm. blue,
0: right? So, if you were a word, what would you be? Tell me about that. Okay, I
1: I had a, a, a lot of thought. I really appreciated you sending me a few of the questions that we might talk about today. Um, and this was one of the questions you sent me. And I had, a, I, I had to really think about this word for several days. Um, I was all over the place with it because when I... First thought of it, I thought, you know, I'm many words. I am like a patchwork quilt, and every patch has a different word of who I am. And I, I just narrowed it down and narrowed it down, and um, I finally decided on the word teacher, because I am a public school teacher, and I've been that for many, many years. Um, and there's so many facets that are part of being a school teacher that can define who you are that can define what that word is so i sat with the word teacher for a while and then i then i wasn't happy with it and i remember being out for a drive and i thought i think a better word for me would be the word mom i am mom to so many people um that that's just who I am. I am mom. You you know, you can be a teacher and you can be mom. You can be mom to people on staff. You can be mom to your children's friends. So that's who I was going to, that was the word I was going to use. And then I was visiting with a friend on FaceTime just last week. And she said, Catherine, you are so resilient. And I thought, oh, my. (laughs) That's the word, that's it. I wasn't even looking for it, and there it was. So I think after all that long chat, um, I think the word to
0: describe myself would be resilient. Well, and knowing you, the bit that I do know know about you is that I would agree, I would concur. Yeah. And there have been many instances that you have told me about that illustrate this resilience. For instance, tell me about when you were two. What what were you experiencing at two that maybe kind of uh, embedded this in you? That's a really good question. Um, At the
1: age of two, I was um, the second child. Uh, I had an older brother who was two years older than I and he was very, very ill with cancer. He had a form of liver cancer Mm-hmm. And um, he was uh, in the hospital, and I was a little two-year-old. My dad was having to work um, and be at the hospital whenever he could. My mom uh, was at the hospital, and so I was placed at that time in the nursery at at the Children's Hospital in Winnipeg. And I don't even know if there were supervisors. I, I know nothing about I don't remember about what it looked like or what, it, what the experience was. But I do remember every day my mom coming and saying, okay, honey, uh, we're going to the hospital to see David. Um, you need to get yourself ready. And so I would go and I would fill a brown paper bag, probably from Safeway, with all the things that I needed to keep myself busy through the day and i would um put books and toys and whatever i i, I don't even remember but what i am told this that i would just fill the bag and head off to the hospital and spend the whole day by myself in the nursery while my mom was caring for my brother and and um yeah so i learned i learned how to
0: be resilient hmm because you mentioned you learned to entertain yourself keep busy yes be resourceful yes and and your brother sadly died? My brother did die, yes he did. He
1: died at the age of four and I was just coming up to yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So you've spoken so highly about your parents that at that time you were alone as a child, but then your sister was born. That's correct, my sister was born three years after. Okay. There's a three years difference between the two of us. So you did mention that you thought it was fairly magnificent, that's my words, but probably Mm -hmm. your words, that your parents were able to turn their attention to you and your other sister. That's correct. They were able to um, focus on you and not your, their own grief.
1: That's correct. We had, my sister and I had a beautiful upbringing and uh, by my parents.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, they sound like exceptional people. They both came from difficulty. Yes. And they, they just became even more amazing. Tell me about your mother and father's upbringing and wh- what they did to overcome that. Yes, um, it is a very interesting story,
1: and I'm a byproduct of their story, right? Um, my my mom, in particular, was raised um, in a very in a very dysfunctional, um, impoverished situation. Um, she was in a a very she was raised in a very poor area of Winnipeg in an apartment building, and her dad would not have to pay rent because his job was to funnel coal into the building to keep it warm. And there were many families on each floor and they shared a bathroom. That, that just says so much to me, um, needing, you know, a different, like I just need a bathroom to myself. And mm-hmm. so to share a bathroom with many families my whole life, I think that would be very, very challenging. And uh, so anyway, um, you know, she had parents that were both alcoholics and as i mentioned just dysfunction in the home Um, but she was able to find um, herself through her studies and through her sports and she loved to learn and she loved to read so that when she was in high school she um, was quite um, uh, quite an excellent athlete and at that point she met my dad who was also an excellent athlete and the two of them fell in love and decided to get married and spoke a lot about um their upbringing and where they'd come from and decided that going forward they wanted to really change things i should mention too that my dad came from a very um it was a loving home but there was an awful lot of alcohol and out of the five children he's the only one that escaped becoming an alcohol an alcohol an alcoholic and so needless to say as my sister and i were raised we were raised in a home without alcohol
0: i get it and (laughs) Uh, I understand your father sounds quite famous.
1: <laughs> my my dad his his call to fame was um, his athletic abilities. He was a very very smart man. He um, received uh, a scholarship to the University of Minnesota, but it was during the war years, and he was not able to attend there so following that he he got a job as a toy buyer for a small um, dry goods uh company that spread through western ontario uh, western uh, canada called robinson little and company hmm. but before that my dad was quite the tra- track athlete and he he became known as the fastest man in manitoba and uh yeah he was also a very uh very good soccer player and he was inducted into the manitoba hall of fame uh, the hall of Theme for soccer. Um, His his big thing that he was most proud of his whole life was he raced against Jesse Owens um, following the war years at the Osborne Stadium, and he was very proud of that. We have a picture um, in my sister's home now that hangs still, and I was raised with that picture on the wall.
0: Wow, because you mentioned that after the Probably the nineteen thirty six Olympics. Yes. Jesse Owens would travel across That's across
1: right. North he America. would he would travel all across Canada, probably through many of the states, and he would race. They would they would promote him and, and he would race the fastest person in either the state or the province. And so when he came to Manitoba it was my dad and my dad ran against him and uh, yeah, it was a, it was my
0: dad said it was just an honor. He just said he was a fabulous person. Well, and your mother had a way, you mentioned, of always wanting to have people around who could teach her things. That's
1: right. Um, being raised the way she was, she didn't know etiquette. Um, she had never sat at a beautiful table. She didn't know how to set a beautiful table. And so she was very gifted at pulling people around her who could teach her things, who could teach her all the things that she needed to know to go forward,
0: hmm. yeah, yeah, and you mentioned that she would have um, literary people mm-hmm. you mentioned Carol Shields and mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. in the home that you were accustomed to seeing, so it sounds like a lot of exciting and scintillating conversations went on
1: that's right um, after um, after my parents
0: um, started to um, uh,
1: just grow in their marriage and have children and mom began to uh, go to university and she went to normal school and became a a public school teacher and then you know she started to teach just little bits at a time while we were young and then as we started to get older she'd teach more and more and um, she continued to Um, go to university, even after she had her degrees, and she would just take courses that she was interested in. And she was always a very gifted writer, but she knew she had a lot to learn. So she took Carol Shields courses at the university and she and Carol became friends. And so often um, we would have people like that um, in our home for supper, at the at the dinner table on Sunday nights. We were always required to be at supper on Sunday, and, and uh, you know, just all sorts of people would sit at our table. It was often family. Um, it was often um, people of, you know, in the neighborhood, but it was also often interesting people like Carol, and, and I remember meeting um, Pearl McGonagall, who was uh, the Lieutenant Governor, Lieutenant Governor of Manitoba, and the Colemans, who are very, very well known people in Winnipeg, and um, Henry Izad, Henry G. Izad, who is a school named after him. He was actually the superintendent of the school that Mum worked in and um, opened a school for. And so, yeah, that would have been really quite unreal, I
0: think. interesting people. Pardon me. Unheard of for her to open a school for someone to open a school
1: unheard of at that time for as particularly a woman who was invited into a new division to open up a brand new school, uh, yeah, wow. she was just a quite a remarkable woman,
0: and um you showed me a picture of an award that you received uh, that she was given posthumously, yes, and you received from. Tell me about that award. Oh,
1: sure. That that's that is just um, that was just an honor, just a high honor in my life. Um, sort of on the coattails of all my mom's work, um, Henry G. Zatt, uh nominated my mom for the Order of Canada, mm-hmm. and um, um, so it was it was put into into play uh, while she was very ill and uh, she had cancer at the time and so while they were making a decision about the the award uh, she did pass away so i had the honor of accepting it posthumously um from adrian clarkson and her husband who flew to winnipeg and there was a big do at the winnipeg art gallery and i was able to accept this award it was a very exciting time for me because our premiere was there and also our um um mayor Mary, the Mayor of Winnipeg was there, wow.
0: so it was it was it was such an honor for me mm-hmm. wow, well, it's so clear how I, in such high regard you hold your parents
1: i do i I hold them both in such high regard. Mm-hmm. They were wonderful parents, yes isn't that amazing yeah, it, it is it's really neat to be able to say that because there's not there's so many people who are not able to say that about their
0: parents, quite true yes. So there you are, um, and you mentioned in grade one, even so we've gone from age two, now you're about five or six. I don't know how children are when they're grade one. And you said something about your role was to be, tell me about that role. You said you were tiny. Oh, yes, yes, I was always,
1: Um, the smallest of the bunch, Um, all, all my friends, believe it or not, we're all still friends now, like 55 years later, and I was always the shortest Not necessarily the tiniest, but I was always (laughs) the shortest. And so I was always given the responsibility, you know, how we used to line up for, you know, the the, the festivals or for anything that went, oh, for picture day from smallest to largest. So it was always little Kathy Gibb had to be the first one. So I was always responsible to know where I was headed, where I needed to take um, the line because that's what, that's, everybody had to follow me so yes i was always leading the pack that way
0: and one of your unique abilities that you mentioned of two would be leading yes leading teaching and planning yes so tell yes. me some of the things that you have led taught and planned oh
1: my goodness i have tried everything i'm i'm a person that um, gets an idea, and um, I'm a bit of a risk taker, and if I get an idea, I will give it a try. And so there's there's just endless things that I've tried over my life, um, not knowing if they're gonna work or bomb. Um, let me think, um, I we were, we were part of a, a church in Winnipeg in the downtown area, which is the poorest of poor areas in Winnipeg. We were there for tw- 22 years, and that's where I really learned how to serve and to um, try different things and to plan things and to organize things. So yeah, that's, that's where a lot of mm. things came from. Um, I was part of many things, just simple things like hampers or uh, food drives. Um, We did something called a street feed, where we fed hundreds and hundreds of people um, barbecue, um, potlucks. Um, I did uh, some different kinds of runs, such as I did a a jean drive for um, women of the sex trade. I did uh, clothing co-op. I collected underwear for the homeless. I've just done some really interesting things that um, mm. I've tried and have been successful. Tell me about the knitting story. Oh, the knitting story is such a beautiful story um, because it's it's followed me here to London, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was in my classroom and a, and a small group of girls came to the door, there were little grade five girls, and they knocked on the door and they said, Mrs. Parker, we have a question for you. Do you think you could be our knitting club supervisor? And I said, oh girls, I'm just so honored to be asked to do this, but I don't knit. And they said, well actually you don't really need to knit. We just need a supervisor. We need an adult supervisor. <laughs> we need a classroom. And I just chuckled and I said, well, okay, girls, I can do that for you. I shouldn't say girls. I should say girls and boys because there were both girls and boys in the knitting club. And uh, so we started and they would come to my classroom once a week at lunchtime, thank you. And, um, and they would knit. And so almost right off the hop, I saw them coming in with these beautiful blankets, these big, thick baby blankets. It's this special wool that you can buy for babies at Walmart. And um, these great, big, fat knitting needles that my friend here in London calls broomstick handles. And um, they just sat down in a circle and they started knitting. And I said, well, girls, what are you knitting? And they said, well, we're knitting baby blankets for Syrian refugee babies. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful project. I had no idea what they were doing. I just thought it was a knitting club. And I said, you know, I really like this blanket. I would like to make one. And so the leader said, well, I will set you up next week. I'll bring everything for you. And so the following week she sat down beside me and she taught me the knit stitch and she had already cast on, and so all I had to do was follow this knit stitch back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden I had a blanket in my lap And um, I know a lot of girls in Winnipeg, a lot of women in Winnipeg who are really, really fine knitters and have always tried to entice me into knitting. So when I told them that I was knitting, they were pretty excited about it. And they said, What are you knitting? I showed them, and didn't they get on board? And they started knitting blankets as well. So this pile of blankets started to really pile up. And I finished my blanket, and I had all these blankets that friends were bringing and um, towards the end of the year when the knitting club was ending our principal brilliantly um, pulled together the home on the corner of seniors um, and our little knitting club and thought it would be neat for us to be together and so long story short we finally invited the Syrian refugee families the women and the children and the grandmas to come to the seniors' home where our knitting club was, and we presented all the blankets to the ladies. It was a, a very emotional, moving time, and it was just one of the most precious, precious things I've been involved with. And um, so, then coming to coming to London, I was able to connect with um, some new friends through this one simple stitch that I know. Now, let's let's be really honest, I still cannot cast on, and I always need to have help casting off, but boy, do I do a mean knit, a
0: knit <laughs> stitch. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is um, uh, the reason that you find yourself in Little London Aunt, a woman who was born and raised in Winnipeg, yeah. loved, Her life had a huge circle of friends. Yes. And then finds herself in London, Ontario. Yes. Tell me how you segwayed here, why would you come here?
1: How did that happen? Ah. I know, it's 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 still, my head I think is still spinning on my neck from that one. Um, I was born and raised in Winnipeg and we raised our three daughters in Winnipeg and our careers were in Winnipeg and our families were in Winnipeg and everybody we knew was Winnipeg and here I am living, living in London. And the reason I'm here is because in in 2015 uh, my husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and this was a, a, a very um, crucible moment, as, as you have used the term. It was a crucible moment that caused us to make the change to Winnipeg. My daughter, uh, Jennifer, had come to Fanshawe College from Winnipeg and studied fashion merchandising. Our other daughter, Christine, had moved to Toronto and was working as a registered dietitian there in the sports sports industry. Um, and not industry, but as a sports nutritionist with, with athletes. And our third daughter, Patty, was finishing her PhD and was was just ripe to move anywhere in the world. She was she was just entertaining all sorts of thoughts. So with Jack's diagnosis um, and our three daughters in different places in the country, um, it was just us. And as much as friends and um, extended family want to support, um, you really, you really need your immediate family um, with with Parkinson's support. And uh, so our daughter Jennifer had a real tough love um, conversation with me, and she really was able to zing straight to my heart and make sense. And she said, you know, mom, we are here. We are not coming back to Winnipeg. And that first of all was a real surprise. Um, We are putting in roots here in London and we want you and dad to be part of our lives. We want you to come. We want you to join us here. We want to be there to support you as dads, disease progresses, but we want to be there for you as well. So we thought long and hard about that. That was not an easy conversation, and I was really proud of her for actually tackling it with me, but we talked long and hard about it, and the, at, at the end of the day, we said, you know what, maybe this is something we really nearly need to seriously consider, and so we did. Um, over the course of a few years, um, Jack um, uh, shut down his teaching, Um, and I retired at the end of 2017 as we were both public school teachers and uh, we we sold our home and James and Amanda took care of us and uh, we moved here to London in the fall of 2017 without knowing a soul except for Jennifer. Wow. Yeah.
0: And you are a person who loves and continuously builds relationships. And here you are, and that's one of the reasons you got into the knitting, was that you are trying to develop friendships. That's right. I relationships. That That's
1: right. I am a person that makes and keeps friends. Mm-hmm. And that has served me in good stead here, or uh, in Winnipeg and here as well. Um, I did not give that a lot of thought when we left Winnipeg. I Mm. just assumed that coming to London, I would have friends. And I left uh, uh, many wonderful, wonderful friends behind in Winnipeg and moved here and realized very quickly, my goodness, I don't know a soul. Um, Mm -hmm. I better get, get started making some friends. So we joined a very tiny little church, wonderful place and started having people over and getting to know people and you know just by bit it just it just happens right like one thing leads to another and this leads to another and and now here we sit on probably two and a half years later and I'm I've got lots of wonderful new friends here. Wow. Yeah. What do you think about London? Oh my goodness I love London. Um, I loved Winnipeg. I loved everything about Winnipeg. you know I had been there my whole life I thought I was gonna be there my whole life and then all of a sudden here we are in London and I have probably a lovely little list of things that um, I could tell you about that I love Um, I love the weather Mm. I find it um, actually you'd be surprised to this is very similar to Winnipeg Um, I just think that our colds are colder but it still can be pretty cold here. I was surprised at that. But it can, it's that the the winters are definitely milder. Um, I love that most, I'm a shopper and most of the stores are very similar. So it wasn't a big shock to come to London and, and have to learn all these new stores. It, you know, your your metro is very similar to our Sobeys. I believe Sobeys is here too. Yes. And uh, yeah, so just just all, all the stores are very similar. Um, one of the things I love about London is the destinations outside of London. In Winnipeg, we don't have that as much, but here there's all these beautiful places that we can hit water and hit greens and hit farms uh bayfield and port stanley and be able to see the water and enjoy a day at these little destinations and i really really enjoy that i love that that london is half the size of winnipeg it's um laid out beautifully it's it's like on a grid and you know where everything is it's very easy to get around winnipeg has the Uh, The rivers that are very bossy and they determine where the streets are and so there's a lot of curving and twirling and I find it very straight and direct here in London. Um, Your theatres and your movies and your concerts are fabulous. Um, I shouldn't say your, I should say my now, because mm-hmm. I do consider myself a Londoner now. And um, believe it or not, I love the 401. <laughs> I love I love that the 401 is a direct ribbon from my door to my daughter's door in Toronto. And I do enjoy that drive.
0: Hmm. You strike me as such a grateful person.
1: Well, I, I, I like to live
0: that way. I like mm-hmm. to be a grateful person, yes. Because in the resilience piece, and the, you had—I believe you were 24 when your mother was diagnosed with cancer. That's
1: that's correct. Maybe even a little bit younger. Um, I was married very early, and and shortly into my married life, she was diagnosed with cancer. That's right, right. Wow.
0: Yeah. So you've you've had to change gears a lot, and then then uh, 2010 was quite the year for you. 2010
1: was was a very big year. It um there were three big things that happened in the, that year. First of all, um one of my daughters was married. So that was that was just a wonderful time. Um however, there's also lots of stress putting on a, a wedding too, right? Mm-hmm. And um my my dear dear father passed away that year. And it was also a year that I had uh, surgery. And when I woke up from the surgery, my hearing was gone. Wow! so all of this happened within a year and yes it was it was a very challenging time mm-hmm. and you're a musician and i'm a musician i'm a pianist and i play the violin i played the piano i played the violin i played the flute i played all the recorders i i was raised in music and um, my whole life and uh yeah um losing your losing in my in my case only um I've I lost my my ability to be able to hear music. Mm-hmm. Wow! Mm-hmm.
0: Because you mentioned that you now tell me. I mean, you have hearing aids. Yes. Specialized hearing aids. Yes. And the interesting thing is, you and I are doing this face to face. We are. Whereas the other interviews I'm doing, have been done on Zoom audio. Yes. And partly. Um, I don't even see the person's face, because I think people can just... They don't need to see my face. Um, They can think and just kind of dream and go off in different directions. Yes. But you told me that you had to embrace being hearing
1: impaired. Yes, I did. I did. It's, It's quite a lot to come to grips with. And, you know, you can either feel really badly about it or you can say, well, there's nothing you can do about this. Just start living again. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided to just get back on my feet after I I lost my hearing and realized I lost my hearing because it took some time to discover it and um, to get the hearing aids and then to identify as a, a hearing impaired person. Mm. and that it that took me a while because I still considered myself a hearing person right because i'm I'm fifty years old and and I was really, really fortunate to be directed to um uh Jason camp in Winnipeg and Jason and I um really connected he was born hearing impaired and so he's the audiologist who looked after me. And I kept saying to him, I was able to really identify to perfection what I needed with my hearing because my brain still remembered Mm. And his brain never remembered because he was born hearing impaired. So the two of us could network together and he could work as an audiologist with my disability now. But he's coming from a very different place. So he really appreciated the detail that I could give him to make my hearing as perfect as I could. And I, when my hearing aids are on, I I actually think I can hear. I think I hear very, very well um, when my hearing aids are not in. I know that I'm disabled. But um, as soon as those aids go on, I
0: just, I just do my very best. Hmm. <laughs> and because you, you and I are speaking and you're looking intently at my face, um, someone meeting you would not know that unless you tell them. That's right. So what has it been like for you, See, even traveling? Uh, or going someplace, um, tell me how you handle that.
1: Well, I um, at first I didn't. At first I struggled and I made mistakes and people would look at me strangely. Um, I you, you get all sorts of responses. Um, but now, if I am flying or if I am um, getting onto um, a bus, um, I will tell the person that's directing the bus or that's taking the tickets that I am hearing impaired and they really appreciate knowing um, knowing that and and it's not that um, it, it's not that you're given special privileges. it's just that you're a little bit more cared for and you feel safer. And so now when I go to an airport, for example, at the gate, I will always identify myself as hearing impaired, and they will have me. They will have me sit in the handicap section, and um, I'll get all sorts of looks from people. One one man actually challenged me that I was sitting there once because I don't look like I'm. In, I have a, a disability. But um, but anyway, I did what I was told, and I sat there, and and they will signal to me, and I will be allowed to board board the plane first or I will be allowed to get in the line first. And I find that it really helps with my anxiety because you're always worried that you're not going to hear something Mm -hmm. so then the minute I get on the plane I make eye contact with the with the steward and and I explain that I'm hearing aid hearing impaired and they say how can we help you and I say if you could just give me a real quick rundown on the safety procedures before before we leave I would appreciate it and most often than not they come down and they squat beside me and they walk me through it all and and it just it just takes your anxiety away a bit
0: Mm -hmm. I love the way you've embraced that Well, Catherine, we've talked about resilience. Yes. Next, I'd like to know your thoughts on service.
1: My definition of service? Yes. Uh, My definition of service would be um, making time for others, listening to others, giving of my time. That would be my definition of service. Um, My parents raised me with a service mindset. And, using the word galvanized, what galvanizes me um, are works of service, right? Um, If someone has a need and I can help, I always will. Uh, During trials, um, my mindset is always what can I learn so that I can pass this on um, at another time when someone else else is in need.
0: So give me an example. Okay, I think you mentioned uh story around your mother's death. Um that would that would be
1: about uh the pizza delivery. Is that the one you're referring to? Yes. Okay. Um my my mom, I remember passed away at Easter time on the Thursday and um I was really glad it wasn't Friday because then it would have been good Friday. <laughs> and I, so I was really glad it was the Thursday. I was very thankful for that. So then on, on the Friday is it's, it's the first day and I'm not teaching and, um, you know, there's no school and, you know, you're just in a place of devastation. Your, your, your stomach's upset and you've got this big job ahead of you with, with the funeral and letting people know and, and, um, you're just, you're just, rocked my my world was rocked and and I remember it was getting close to supper time and the front door bell rang and I went to answer the door and there was a woman standing there and at first it took me a minute to recognize who it was and then I went oh my goodness this is one of my student's parents and she was standing there at at my front door like she's it, it was kind of strange, you know. And in her left hand, she had, in her left arm, she had a beautiful Easter lily. And in her right arm, she had a great big hot pizza. And I remember taking the lily and putting it on the floor and then taking the box of pizza and holding it to me. And it was warm. And it was warm. And so I thanked her, of course, and she went on her way. And my family and I went into the kitchen and we fell on that pizza like hungry wolves. We were we were just so grateful that we didn't have to make supper. Could I have made supper? Yes. Did I have food to make supper? Yes. Did I have meals in the freezer that I could have brought out? Yes. But this woman brought me a pizza. And she didn't phone first and say, what kind of crust do you like? What kind of sauce do you like? What are your toppings? What she just went to the store and bought a pizza and brought it to us and we ate it and i remember thinking learn at this time learn from this so that in the future when there's a death i can send a pizza and i've actually done that from london i ha- i have a friend in winnipeg and i call her and i say would you go to calabria and pick me up a big pizza and deliver it to my friend and it and and this the, it was the same reaction from my friend it was this pizza was warm, Kath, and we went into the kitchen. I don't even think we sat down. We just opened up the box and we ate like hungry wolves. And I thought to myself, "Yeah, there—that's—that's—that's that's, that's what you pass forward, right?" Mm. And that wasn't even my idea. That was some something that somebody did for me. Mm. Yeah. But then, what did your friend say when you sent the pizza to her? The, the one who received it. Yes. She said, "How did you know what to do?" Mm. and the only reason i knew what to do was because i had
0: experienced it so you mentioned that in order to really know something you need to experience, need to it. experience it yeah yeah so tell me about what you're writing
1: what i'm writing right now oh sure i i am writing um, i don't even know what you would call it i i don't I, it's a book but is it a journal, or is it a memoir, or is it a self-help book? I don't, I don't know what it is. But what I'm doing is I'm recording my journey with Parkinson's as a caregiver, because I'm finding right now as I'm starting to really get in into um, into Parkinson's with my husband that there's a ton of material out there. There's there's so much that you can access and learn and people willing to help you. But what I need personally is not there, just kind of the, the nuts and bolts that I need to survive this. So I'm kind of figuring out a whole bunch of stuff on my own. And I'm thinking that probably in the future, there's going to be more people, men or women, who um, would really benefit from having me recorded. That, record this, having already
0: figured out some things. Because mm. you mentioned you told me, I don't know if you remember this, there was your perception that you were running very quickly out of soap and toilet paper. Out of
1: soap and toilet paper, because yeah, that's that's right. Um, and I hope i'm I hope I'm referring to what you're saying um, with Jack not being able to um, hold of a, a, a bar of soap that gets too small yes. and slippery. And it falls out of his hand, and then it's at the bottom of the bathtub or or wherever or the bottom of the sink and so I find that he's opening boxes of soap so that he can hold a full bar, and we have lots of bars of soap <laughs> lots of bars of soap open in the in the uh in the bathroom and um and it's fine, I mean I'm making it work, but it it is a change it is a change so i but you observe that. i I'm observing this, yes, so yes. Have you put that in your book?
0: Oh, for sure. Yes, yes. I I will. Yeah. Because if someone didn't know to observe, I wonder why that's happening. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. because yeah, yeah, because he needs he needs to hold a
1: big piece, right? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's a wonderful. Oh, piece. and that, thank you for remembering that.
0: <laughs> so it's interesting because at the beginning of your story. You talked to me, I'm just going to go back to this part, that when you were two, you had to learn to entertain yourself, keep yourself busy, be resourceful. You were blessed, you said, with good common sense. Yes. And you have this way of knowing when to pick up the reins and put them down, although you're not a horsewoman. You mentioned I that. Have not, not I'm, not, I'm not a
1: great animal person, but I, I'm learning
0: i learning you, but I love the analogy picking up the reins um, and it turns out that the skills that you developed when you were two are the skills that have made you successful now through a As, lot of travails yeah yeah.
1: isn't that interesting um, that maybe some of those things when I was a little tiny, tiny child were so ingrained that they become who I am Yes. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, And now as a caregiver, right? Because really, I've been a caregiver for an awful lot of years. And Mm -hmm. I'm still, you know, I'm still not that old. (laughs) No, but you've been a caregiver a lot of times. (laughs) Yes, and a lot of times, too. That's
0: right, yeah. And, you know, with people that experience in a relationship the illness of one of the other parties, one of the parties, um... It's, it involves role changes yes, that it can does. really affect a relationship unless the yes. relationship yeah. is strong or you keep it strong. Yes. So you go from being a wife or a husband, whoever yes. the person is, and lover and friend to caregiver and patient. <laughs> and, you know, I think unless you're very careful, that can blur
1: the boundaries and everything yeah um, a, a few things like Jack and I had quite traditional roles in our marriage All the, we'll be married 40 years in July and we had quite traditional roles and um, I did this and he did this and i did this and he did this and so because of his incredibly genius math brain like i would just sit in meetings and kind of get my eyes crossed and he would always give me a little nod that he's he's got it and i never worried about you know investments and banking and mortgages and lawyers and you know everything everything i would always go along and i i really wanted to understand and i would get the basic basic grasp of things but he was always the one that really nailed it and so now um you know as we're here things things are changing a bit and he's he's quite comfortable I think with me um taking responsibility for more things and so I'm I'm finding a lot of things are are transferring to my shoulders one thing my whole life and um I don't even know if I should say this but I'm going to because it's going to sound like I'm a bit of a princess, but my dad always looked after the gas in the car, always. He looked after the car, and so my whole life until Jack and I were married, I never really had to look after the gas. Do I know how to put gas in a car? Yes, of course I do, and I've done it many times, but it wasn't it wasn't my job. And then I married Jack, and he picked it up, and he has always looked after the gas in the car. And so now... As I'm doing all the driving, when the two of us are together, um, I'm starting to realize that I'm needing to take on some of the car responsibilities. So last week, I went to the mechanic for the first time in my life, and he came out to me and he said, okay, Jack really looks after your car. Well, I have a question for you. And I said, oh, oh my, I hope I can answer. <laughs> and he said, Do you, does he put synthetic gas, or, no, synthetic oil or regular oil into the car because I'm having an oil change. And I said, um, I have no idea. And he said, well, Jack really looks after your car, so I think he probably puts synthetic oil. And I said, okay, you put synthetic oil in, you put that into my file, and don't ever ask me again. And we had a little <laughs> bit of a laugh about that, you know, but here I am sitting... You know, it was the hottest day that we've had in June, and I'm sitting in a lawn chair because I have to be outside, and I'm in the back of the garage, and he's working on the car in the front, and he just has to keep coming back and asking me these questions. And I honestly have no idea, but I'm learning. And it's, it's as I'm saying, these, these things are being transferred onto my shoulders. Um, do, I, do I know what to do? No. Am I learning what to do? Yes. Do I want to do this? No. Do I have to do this? Yes. And so you do it. So you do it, right? And you seem to do it with love. Oh my stars! I absolutely, absolutely. This is my husband. I love this man to death. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's. I mean, that's amazing to be able to say that. <clears throat> and you mentioned um, a wonderful poem.
1: Yes, this is this is a poem, Um, you know, Annette, I don't know who wrote it. I don't know where I read it. I don't know where I got it. All I know is it really resonated with me, and I wrote it down, and I have it on my desk, and I, I really, really like it. Did you want me to read it? Yes, I'd okay. love Um <clears throat> It's, um, a, a beautiful woman uses her lips for truth, her voice for kindness, her ears for compassion, her hands for charity, and her heart for love.
0: Wow. I just love that, don't you? I just love that. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, I wow. think that sums you up. <laughs> Beautiful <laughs> well, inside well, and out. I had that
1: sure compliment. Thank you. Wow. Thank you.
0: It's been such a pleasure talking to
1: you. I think the pleasure's been mine. I thank you so much for your time and for being interested in me. And I, like I mentioned before, thank you for those questions because it's really caused me to uh, dig deep and to, to go way back and to think about things. I've remembered things I haven't thought about in years and it's been a real pleasure to do that. Mm, wow, well, you're a blessing. Thank you. Thank you.